So as many of you know, we've been working our way through the Bible, starting from Genesis, trying to uh, make clear as the story of the Bible is unfolding, also seeing what is purposely being taught to us as the scriptures unfolding. Because every truth isn't developed exactly clearly at every single point in scripture. So there are some things that are developed as we see it move forward. So we've made our way all the way to Job. Well, actually not true. We passed Job a long time ago in, in the actual time, but we'll talk about that in a second. But we've made our way all the way to, at this point, all the way through First uh, and Second Samuel, First and 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We've made our way all the way through there. We're, we're now actually going to be, when we come back to the narrative of the story, at the prophets as they're prophesying about what's going to happen to Israel and Judah in the in the judgment that's going to come upon them, but we were we were trying to decide where to fit all this in, and we are going to take a little bit of a detour for a, a number of weeks to deal with number one this week Job, and then the following weeks uh, Psalms and Proverbs, and then we will sort of come back to the story uh, after that point. So let's, I'm going to, I want to pray one more time. I want to ask the Lord to help us again. Uh, We can't, we really can't pray enough for God's help to understand his word and to apply it. So I want to pray again and then we will, we'll enter into this. Father, again, we ask for your help. God, we, we don't simply ask for help to understand doctrine we ask that that the truths embedded in this book would transform us. In some way, these realities of suffering and and enduring in faith, um, we've maybe heard them numerous times, but I, I pray tonight would be different. The, the, the transition would be made from a weak faith to a strong faith, from unsurety about God's will and his sovereignty to complete surety. We ask for that, O God, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 22. Or, I'm sorry, verse 21. There's not going to be a lot of context here. We'll look at it in a second. I just, I want to read this. Chapter 1, verse 21, And he, that's Job, said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job says something in these verses that I want us to be able to say, I think that we can say and will say, even in the worst circumstances, only when we trust fully in the Lord and we are well acquainted with the truths that are in Job. 
And so I don't, I, I honestly, brethren, I don't doubt that many of you have found yourself probably reading Job in times of suffering and times of difficulty. I have done that. Many people I know have done that. Um, in some form, it is the, the loving shoulder that the Christian can lean on when they're, they're dealing with difficulty, they're dealing with suffering. Uh, they can go here and they can find, you know, some sense of community, communion with Job in that, that their suffering and his suffering is in some sense alike. And so we, we know that, we've seen that, we've felt that. Um, we can feel the pain of Job. We can see his sufferings. We can feel the internal wrestling of Job crying out. In a sense, God, why have you hidden yourself from me? Uh, we, we've known that. We can feel that. But, and, and honestly, if you haven't felt that, um, chances are either you are recently converted, and one thing I can promise you is you will feel that, or there is something lacking in your Christian walk, if it can be called that. If you have had no times of suffering or difficulty where God is testing, that is embedded in, into the Christian life. We are promised that. But what I want to help you to see, which is what I prayed for, is that to apply these truths that are invaluable, not just hear them, not just understand them, not just know them, not just theory, not just doctrine, but real life application that, that alters our understanding and our, our practice in life so that we would say, like Paul says to the Corinthians, that it is a light momentary affliction that we have that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that has no comparison to the suffering that we have in this life. That's what I want, brethren. You know, Paul doesn't speak of no affliction. He says there is affliction, but it is light and it is momentary. He recognizes it, but he also recognizes what's awaiting and there's something far more glorious then. So what I want to do is consider, I, I wrestled with how to deal with this um, because I think so many times, I don't know about you, I've heard Job preached and every time it's the same message, it's the same thing. And I, I wrestled with how do I teach, present the truths that are here, but in a way that's not just sort of saying the same old things that maybe some of us have heard a lot of times. Um, and I hope maybe this is, uh, if you have read it a lot of times or you've heard it preached a lot of times, that, that somehow this is helpful for you to see clearly uh, in a new light. But what I'm going to do... We're going to consider five principles, biblical principles, of suffering. There's going to be somewhat of a theology of suffering that, we, that we're going to look at through Job. So the five principles is going to be, number one, there is real grief that comes with suffering. Real grief that comes with suffering. Number two, what is the ultimate cause of suffering? Number three, what is the individual cause of suffering? You understand what I mean by that? The distinction there, right? If we look at suffering in a very general way, 
what is the cause from the top down in a general fashion for all the suffering in the world. But the difference in point three is individually, if I suffer or you suffer or someone else suffers, what is the cause individually of that suffering? It's not always the same. Number four, God's sovereignty and purpose in suffering. And number five, the ultimate termination of suffering. And so before we really look at those, I think it is somewhat helpful to get a sort of an overall understanding of the book and see how it really fits in the grand scheme of the story, because we don't want to leave that out. And so the reason I said this in the beginning that we skipped over Job in some sense is because Job, this book is old, very old. In fact, most scholars, most biblical uh, teachers would probably say that Job is either very close to or probably the first written scripture that the Jews ever had. Very first, before the Torah, before the first five books of the Bible, they probably had Job first. Um, and so it's not, we, we can't exactly say when it was written or, or even really by whom it was written. But we can say this. We can say that it's likely that Job lived either before or during the time of Abraham. And we could say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, just deducing from a couple of facts throughout the book, Job probably lived to be about 200 years old, which seems to fit into the category of right there along that, that span of Abraham. Just to give you some reference, Abraham died when he was 175 years old. So Job was... Tw probably 25 years older, if not older, than Abraham when he died. So it probably puts him a little bit before. Um, secondly, in the book, Job is offering sacrifices for his family. Uh, obviously, at the time, there was no priesthood established. There were no laws as to what the sacrifices were to look like, but there was practice of sacrifices for sins. That was there. It was present. Three, there is not even the slightest mention in the book of major events that come afterwards. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, anything about Abraham's life, nothing about the life of the Israelites, nothing about Egypt, nothing about the Exodus, nothing about the conquering of the land, nothing. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that it could have happened, but it's very unlikely in regards to everything Job is dealing with if the Israelites had been through this type of suffering before, that it would be referenced. But in fact, the opposite seems to be the case. When you look at the, the, the commentary of the Jewish people as they went through the Exodus, a lot of times they're actually dealing with what's happening in Job saying, look what happened here. Job's suffering much like our suffering. So they're applying it actually the opposite way. So all of this would seem to indicate that at least the events of Job happened prior to Abraham, even though it may not have been, may not have been written until later, but Job himself and all of the events are probably prior to all of that. Now, all of that is to say this, this is a very interesting time. This is a period that we almost have no insight into biblically. 
If you remember, we basically went from uh, the flood, mankind begins to disperse again over the face of the earth, and then what happens? They build the Tower of Babel, right? And then what? God destroys the Tower of Babel. And then what's next in Scripture? Abraham. Abraham. That's it. Tower of Babel gets destroyed. Next page, Abraham's on the scene. There's, we have almost nothing of this in-between sort of period. So it's a very interesting time. We know almost nothing. And I think knowing that can help us a little bit in interpretation of this book. Because without much of the revelation that would come later, through Abraham, through Moses, through all these other people, um, we're, I think we're better able to understand the wrestlings that are happening with Job, with Job's friends as they try to deal with his sufferings, and, and really how they often counsel him incorrectly. And we often negate the counsel of Job's friends. We say, oh, that's, that's wrong. They shouldn't have said that. And maybe that's true, but the reason we can do that is because we're looking at it from a different vantage point than they were, right? So they're in a situation trying to counsel. And the reality is, I think Job's, if you read the book, Job's friends are not being uh, unnecessarily antagonistic. They're not being un uh, or, uh, purposely false. I think Job's friends are genuinely trying to understand and counsel Job, but the problem is they don't have the biblical framework that we have now. They have no ability to sort of comprehend what's happening in a fuller or biblical fashion. So they're trying to make sense of the issues before them, but they almost have nothing outside of probably oral tradition, oral Oral stories passed down through time. And so therefore, much of what Job's friends say tends to be half true, half false. True facts, just not necessarily for Job. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but you hear it in the prophets. Um, God often calls for a word in season. Um, there's this sense in which um, especially the prophets are preaching what the people needed to hear at the time they needed to hear it. And this is what we want in our own lives. We want a word in season. We want that brother needs something. I want to pray and speak to him and, and may it be exactly what he needs at that time. What you see in Job is not a word in season. You see a lot of words you see a lot of doctrine, you see a lot of assertions, which at the foundation are not necessarily false, but applied to Job, not what he needs, not exactly correct. And the, the reason is that they, Job's friends are making a very strict connection between uh, circumstance and retribution for sin very strict connection, which does not allow them to see that God has purpose and sovereignty in suffering that may be unseen or mysterious. They're not able to do that type of bibliology. They're not able to actually pull together numerous truths to try to, try to give him some understanding. And so anyway, I, I say all that because I think understanding that helps us to 
better understand where Job's, how he's dealing with this, how his friends are, are often counseling him, maybe not in a right way, even though we read it and we go, well, that's true, but not really true. It's, a, it's an interesting, certainly an interesting time uh, of space and an interesting um, book to try, to try to bring reconciliation to some of these things. But we're going to deal with these five principles, and I'm going to pull from all of these places. We're going to pull from Job's words. We're going to pull from Job's friends' words as they're in accordance with the rest of Scripture. We're going to pull from God's words. Because ultimately, we want a theology of suffering, and we know this. Back, I think we looked at, yeah, Aaron, Aaron talked about it. Back uh, when you see God speaking through Balaam's donkey, um, Job's friends, though they don't often give right counsel, they often do say true things, and we want to take that into account. If it's true... It doesn't matter how it's said or who it's said by. False teachers can say true truths. Um, and so we, we want to take into account what is biblically true. We want to create for ourselves a theology of suffering. So the first thing, there is real grief in suffering. The fact of the matter is that that's not only true, but there is nothing ungodly about that. There is nothing sinful about feeling grief in the midst of suffering. We're made to feel that. And in fact, the Bible even speaks of God in this type of language. We read some of these in, in our weeks past. Genesis 6.6 6 says that God was grieved to his heart that he had made man because of their wickedness. Psalm 78 verse 40 says that the Israelites rebelled against God in the wickedness and it grieved him. Ephesians 4.30 says we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And now brethren, if it were sin to feel grief or, or, or to, to have grief in the midst of suffering, it'd be a big problem for the Bible to start appropriating language like this to God. Now, there could be some real clarity that's made as to exactly what's meant by this language. I, I'm not going to do that right now, but um, here's the idea. It's important for us to understand, very important for us to understand, and have a biblical foundation that can't be shaken. So we do want to make clarification and say that although the language is used of God grieving or us grieving the Holy Spirit, it is not to say that God shifts in his emotional state. But my point is, even if that's not true, and the language is metaphorical in nature, the language is still applied to God. And it's not applied to him in a sense that he's sinning by, by this even as the scripture uses it metaphorical language, it's not speaking of him committing sin. My, my point is simply to say this. The language is used about God, and even if the language itself isn't literal, we can certainly understand 
that for us, it being literal, it would not be sin to have grief in the midst of suffering. And maybe you think that I'm making too big of a deal out of that. But I think it needs to be because the fact of the matter is, I, th I think as we search deep sort of into um, what we would probably consider reformed Christianity or, or really just biblical Christianity, there is often a mentality that seems to say that if you grieve, you're sub-Christian. If you wrestle with difficulty or difficult circumstances, you're sub-Christian. If you don't automatically shout praises in the midst of terrible suffering, you're sub-Christian. If you don't always find joy in suffering, you're sub-Christian. Even so far as to say, if you are not actively seeking to suffer, you're sub-Christian. I have experienced this. Maybe some of you have experienced this. this I'm telling you, brethren, it is something we deal with. And so, I, I, like I said, you may think that I'm making a bigger deal out of that than needs to be, but I want there to be a balance because although we are promised suffering in Scripture and we are told to endure it with joy, the fact of the matter is we, got, we have to remember that suffering is not the ideal. It is not the height of Christian experience to suffer. Ultimately, listen, we grieve about suffering not because it is the greatest thing ever, the height of Christian experience. We grieve about it because we long for it to be removed. And we look for the day that it is removed. We look for the consummation of all, all things. When suffering is eradicated, that's what we want. We don't want to suffer. Yes, we will suffer and we will endure suffering with joy. But brother, we don't want that, right? Do you want to suffer forever? Or do you want suffering to end and dwell with Jesus Christ in paradise? Amen? Yeah, the, latter. <laughs> the latter, right? So here we can look into our own souls and we can find, like I said, com communion. We can find affinity with Job because Job's grief is not a facade, brethren. It's not something fake. Uh, this, is, this is real grief in the midst of real suffering. Go to, go to chapter 3 and I'm going to read these verses here. Chapter 3 starting in verse 11. He says, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child? As infants who never see light, there the wicked cease from trouble, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease. They hear not the voice of their taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not? And dig for it more than for hidden treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to man, 
whose way is hidden from God, uh, whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job's grief is at a level that maybe few have experienced. We're talking about a man whose entire family, everything, his home, his animals, his whole livelihood is stripped from him except, except his wife, who also seems to despise him. Job is left with absolutely nothing. And to top all that off, he is covered head to toe in festering sores, and he is a stench to everyone around him. This is suffering. This is real suffering. And his grief is such that he wishes he was never born. He longs for death. He says later on in chapter 6, Oh, that it would please God to crush me, that, I would, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. He says his grief is such that he has no ease, no rest. He's burdened down and covered with grief. Brethren, have you known this? Maybe you know this now. Felt such grief that you would rather just die than continue on. Because you don't want to endure. It doesn't seem worth it to do so. Have you been in a place where the weight seems to be so much that you, that you say, I have no rest? I have no ease. When we carry the sort of suffering, the sort of grief that Job seems to carry here, what are we supposed to do? And, and though, like I said, though Job's friends don't always give perfect advice, uh, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, says something of great value. Uh, chapter 5, look with me at this, chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. He says, as for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Brethren, grief in the midst of suffering is real. It's real and it's weighty. But there's an answer to that. There's an answer to the grief that can ultimately carry us on and carry us through the midst of it. You remember one of whom it is said was acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 says that about Jesus Christ himself acquainted with sorrows, or a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And our Lord knew this reality well. And what do we find Him doing? Often in communion with His Father. Often in fellowship and in prayer with His Father. 
We have a great promise in the midst of grief. Not that we will not have it. We have a great promise in the midst of grief, which is seek God, for he will bring high the lowly. Brethren, I encourage you to become familiar with this passage of scripture. I want you to see it. Isaiah chapter 40. This has been uh, at many times a great encouragement to me. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 28. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brethren, we have promise from God that we come to Him in the midst of our suffering, seek Him, and He will bring up the lowly. You will run and not be weary. You shall walk and not faint. He gives power to the faint. God will sustain in the midst of grief. You are not promised to not have any. You are, however, promised that if you seek Him, He will sustain you in it. Now, I want us to see this, the ultimate cause of grief. So if we examine the root of grief and suffering, it will ultimately lead us back to the Garden of Eden. It has to. Now, go back again to... Job chapter 5, and just before the section we just read, I want you to see again these words of Eliphaz. Again, these are, these are wise words. Starting in verse 6. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. See, suffering doesn't just happen. It's not just random byproduct of an uncontrolled chaotic universe. In fact, it seems from these words, which I think are biblical, I think they accord with the rest of Scripture, seems that suffering is in fact so tied to mankind that you could say so long as man remains on the earth and the earth is not yet redeemed, there will be suffering. And why is that? Well, we saw a long way back. And when we, when we looked at Genesis, when we looked at the curse, the man, or, or, or Adam and Eve sinning against God and the curse that came because of, because of it, these curses were directly tied to suffering and difficulty and heartache in life. You can go read them. Genesis chapter 3. And ultimately, suffering in this world 
in a very general sense, is the result of mankind's rebellion against God. It can be said no other way. Listen, if you think of a child that's told by his parents, do not go into the street because you're going to get hit by a car. And the child doesn't listen. And they go into that street and they get hit by a car. And then that child for the rest of his life is paralyzed and in a wheelchair state. This is the same situation. We find ourselves in this. We have been wrecked by the semi-truck of sin. And the damage can't be undone. We will live the rest of our lives in a wheelchair state because of that sin. We can, we can try to live as freeing of a life as we can, but we will never free ourselves from that wheelchair of suffering. You cannot get out because of the sin at the first. So the suffering is tied to it. The action brought about consequence and you can't undo it. Sin on mankind's part against a perfect God and now the pain of suffering is built into the fabric of humankind and it cannot be removed unless the fabric itself is made new. And the thing is, Job seems to know this to be the case, seems to be acquainted with this, seems to be acquainted with the story of the fall, Seems to be acquainted with the fact that those are where his troubles begin. Seems to make reference to this. Go with me to chapter 31, Job 31. Thirty-one, and look at verse 33. It says. If I have concealed my transgressions, as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart. So Job is in the midst of sort of a dialogue, okay? And he's trying to make a case here that he has not hid his sins in his heart, and he's referencing something. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem like much. But when we dig a little bit deeper, we'll see something here. Uh, does anybody have an NASB? You do. Okay. Okay. I want you to read that same verse for me. Okay. Have I concealed my transgression like Adam? Says the NASB. And in fact, almost every other good translation translates it Adam. They don't translate it mankind. And I think the reason for that is the translators are actually grasping on to something that I think Job is doing. I think Job, because listen, the word... Adam is the word Adam. 
which is what the word is in Genesis, translated Adam. The word can also mean mankind, but it depends on the context, what's being said. So I think the translators are picking up on this. I think what's happening is that Job is thinking back to Adam. And he's saying, Adam concealed his sin and it brought calamity upon Adam, not just upon Adam, but all of mankind afterwards. And Job is saying, have I concealed my transgression like Adam? There's a reference back. He knows the story. He knows what happened there. Adam sinned against God and it brought calamity for his suffering. And Job is wondering, is mine the same? Because Adam, Adam concealed his sin and he suffered for it and we suffer for it. And Job is saying, I have not concealed sin. Something's different here. Then he says, look, go down a little bit. Starting in verse 38, he says, if my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. So you see what's happening here. If you are familiar with the story in Genesis, you see the type of connection being made. Remember the, 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 the curse on man? What's going to happen? He's going to work and toil and strive on the land. And what's it going to produce? Thorns. Thorns. <laughs> That's what it says. He's going to work and toil because of, the man, because of the sin of man against God. Work and toil and strive. And what comes out of the ground? Thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow, he says in Genesis. And Job is literally almost pulling these things straight out of Genesis. Again, if you know the story, you know how exceedingly similar these are. And it seems to Job, or it seems to me that Job is not confused about where suffering comes from. Neither are his friends for that matter. They know the ultimate root of suffering is man's sin in the garden against God. The consequences are steep for rebellion against God. Consequences for disobedience are steep. And those consequences cannot be removed apart from a new creation. So now here, the individual cause of sin. This is where things can tend to be a little more difficult. A little, bit, a little bit more difficult to understand. A little more nuanced. This is where it became difficult for Job's friends. And it will often be difficult for us as well. Because when we have times of suffering or tribulation or difficulty in our lives, the search begins, as it did for Job, for sin. There's nothing wrong with that. I think we should do that. As suffering comes in or tribulation comes in, the search needs to begin for sin. What is the cause of this? We need to search out our hearts to see if there's something in us that's the cause of the hardship or the suffering. And so to, to deal with these rightly, I want to give you an answer on both. 
I want to give you an answer on the affirmative. Yes, suffering is the cause of some sin, possibly in your life or my life or somebody else's life, or suffering that is not the cause of sin directly. So in the affirmative, sin can often be the cause of affliction. Isaiah 59, 6 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is sin bringing in a wall of separation between you and God and he does not hear. This is, this is in a real sense, spiritual suffering that you or I will endure because of our own sin against God. Um, now I want you to go to chapter 18 for a minute. And I want you to see the words that are here. Brethren, I don't want you to think for a minute that your sin will never have an effect on you, not just in your relationship to God, but also your well-being and your amount of suffering in this life. Listen to the words spoken in chapter 18. This is uh, uh, by one of Job's friends, Bildad. He says, starting in, in verse 5 of chapter 18, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for his stumbling. Or, and calamity, yes, is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out from the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no savior where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. We know this to often be the case of the wicked. We know this. Surely we can find exceptions. And Job knew there were exceptions. When his friends insist that his circumstances prove him to be a wicked man, he spoke to them in chapter 21 about times when the wicked actually seemed to prosper. But the fact that there are exceptions prove nothing other than there are exceptions. There is still a rule that is generally applied. And this is a general rule. 
The reality is that those who continue in sin against God fall into this category. They look like this. And maybe you in your previous days knew this. Maybe before you were a Christian, you knew this well. Brethren, you ever had schemes that you planned and did that came back to bite you? Have you ever planned dishonesty and deceit and instead you are the one that was deceived? You ever had before the days of your salvation when you were filled with terror on every side from the law, from those around you? You ever had where your strength was famished because you ran yourself dry in sin? Or how about this? Torn from the tent in which you trusted. We know this well apart from Christ. We placed our trust, as the Bible says, in cisterns that don't hold water. And it was torn from us. Everything that we trusted in was gone, just vanished before us. Those who rebel against God know these realities. And we knew them apart from God. There's a lot more that could be said about this, but ultimately this is going to have to suffice. The final state of those who reject God and continue in sin is a deplorable one. If left unrepentant, sinners will never and can never have peace with God. It is not possible. Notice these words. Chapter 20. The words of Job's friend Zophar. Chapter 20, starting in verse 4. He says, Do you not know this from old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? <clears throat> Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. Look to verse 27. He says, the heavens will reveal his iniquity. And the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Listen, this does not bode well for those that continue in rejection against God. <clears throat> it must be dealt with. Later, Another uh, friend of Job's, Elihu, shows up on the scene, and he says it like this. They cry out to God, but he does not answer them because of their pride. God does not hear their empty cry. So the question becomes, if this is the case, what ought to be done? If your calamity is due to sin, what should you do? Go to chapter 22, verse 21. Again, 
words of Job's friends that, that are true words. Starting in verse 21, he says, Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, he will be built or you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust, the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. <clears throat> Maybe these words weren't necessary for Job in this scenario, but they are necessary for someone who experiences affliction or suffering due to their sin. These words are necessary for them. So what does he say? Agree with God. Agree with God about your sin. He knows it. There's no hiding it from him. Agree with God and be at peace. Stop hiding it. Stop making it sound less serious than it is. Stop trying to hold yourself up in front of other Christians. Agree with God. Be at peace. Receive instruction. Remove iniquity from your ways. Don't just pray that it would be removed. Actually remove it. Jesus says, if your hand caused you to sin, pray that your hand would fall off. He doesn't say that. He says, if your hand caused you to sin, cut your hand off. Remove iniquity from your ways. Yes, pray, but then remove In chapter 8, verse 5 through 6, it says it somewhat like this. If you seek God and plead with Him for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you. There's a real sense in which Job says it in his prayers, and we'll look at them. Uh, the Bible calls us to be upright. The Bible calls us to walk righteously. Does that mean that you will walk perfectly righteously? No. But don't make that an excuse for, to continue in sin. The Bible says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Brethren, if there's sin there, there is separation between us and God. I can promise you that. So how about the negative? There are times when we search our heart and maybe there's no sin to be found. Maybe there is no sin that's the cause of our suffering. But brethren, we got to be really willing to make a real search here. Not just a surface level search. Not just, ah, I didn't do, uh, I didn't rob a bank or I didn't kill anybody. A real serious intrinsic look at our souls. We got to be willing to search. We got to ask like Job did. Chapter 6, verse 24, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. We need to pray that before the Lord. Lord, where have I gone astray? Have I gone astray? Because we can be deceived, brethren. He says in chapter 6, verse 30, is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Job is wondering, Lord, 
Show me, reveal it to me. If there's something on my account. But that being said, if we search out our own hearts and a true conclusion is made that the suffering is not a cause of sin, you may find yourself in a position similar to Job and maybe you may speak like Job did. Listen to these verses, chapter 16, starting in verse 14. Job says, He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth upon my skin. I have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Job says that. No violence on my hands. My prayer is pure, and yet there is suffering. Look at chapter 23. Starting in verse 11. Don't downplay this, brethren. Look at these verses. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Folks, after deep, real consideration into our souls, can you say that? Can you come to the conclusion, I have not departed from the commandment of the Lord. I have kept His word. I have treasured His word more than my portion of food. You consider, listen, we just talked about it. This dear brother that is now in prison and will be there for the next four years, prison in China. This is not, you know, minimum security down the street. This is on the concrete floor, eating maggoty bread for four years for preaching the gospel. Brethren, I think that our brothers and sisters in the faith that are persecuted, most, if not all of them, can find themselves in this position. They can say, I have treasured the words of the Lord more than my portion of food, and now I am thrown into a bed of suffering. They can say that. So, <clears throat> what we find then is that their suffering and yours, if you are in it or will be or have been, and there's no sin is of a different origin. It's not the same. Which leads us into this. God's sovereignty and purpose in suffering. God has... I want to make this claim. This is important. God has designed and purposed suffering in the life of a Christian for our good and for His glory. It's not just a part of the world we live in. It's not just part of the result of sin. It is purposed and, and ordained by God that we would be conformed into His image and that He would be more glorified. 
I want you to see, first of all, the reality that God is sovereign over suffering. This is not out of his control. So just look at some of these. We'll just briefly skim them. If Maybe don't turn to them because we're just, I'm just going to read them. We read this one earlier, chapter 1, verse 21. Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then he says a little bit later, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Evil. All this Job did. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Then, chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, he says, But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea, and they will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tests food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding with the length of days. God is sovereign over this suffering. It is not out of his control. So the question then becomes, why? Why is it that suffering comes to those that know God and love Him? Well, again, beyond the first cause of our initial sin of mankind before God, there's another purpose brought out a long time after Job had lived and died and gone to be with Jesus Christ. James writes for us, James chapter 5, I don't know how I'm doing on time, but we are very close to the end. So hang in there. We're almost done. James chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. He says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So Job's suffering was meant to teach him. It was meant to teach him many things. We're going to name four. One, it's meant to teach him the almightiness of God. At the very end of the book of Job, God confronts Job. And Job says this, I know now that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours is thwarted. 
God confesses the almighty, or, or Job confesses the almightiness of God. Number two, it was meant to teach him repentance. He also says at the end of the book, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent. Job sees, meant in Job, he's meant to be taught through the midst of this that God owes him nothing. And his mouth speaks in a way that's rash and 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 at times uh, uh, very unwise towards God's purpose. And at the end, he finds himself being taught repentance. Who are you, Job? Who are you? Where were you when I made the earth and I laid the foundations and I did all of this? Number three, it was meant to teach him, as James says, the compassion and mercy of the Lord. You might say, what? <laughs> My brethren, read to the end. What does God do to Job at the end? Restores him double. Double. We see at the end that God is merciful to him. Though God may allow and bring suffering at times to his people, there's an ancient theologian that says it like this, he sympathizes with them. And in his pity, he redeems them. His heart moves towards them and he earnestly remembers them and works deliverance for them in his own time and way. The merciful compassion, uh, mercy and compassion of God. Number four, it was also meant to teach him to trust in the Lord. James uses the word steadfastness. And you see this played out through Job. As Job says things like what we just sang, though the Lord slay me, I will still praise him. Job is learning steadfastness and trust in the Lord. Brethren, all of this is ultimately done to the praise of God's great name. It's for the purpose that, listen, this is for God's glory and our growth into his image. And that glorifies him. Brethren, what a wonderful reason. Listen, the title that I titled this is Job, Teach Me to Suffer Well. And brethren, what better reason to suffer well other than that God would be glorified in us holding him as our greatest treasure in the midst of suffering. That's a good reason to suffer well, to endure. Lastly, one day suffering will be terminated. This is not forever. You don't want to leave this out. This is a glorious truth that eventually the suffering we face will be eradicated. And this is what Job hoped for in the midst of all of this. I want you to see this briefly. Chapter 14. Verse 14. 
chapter 14, verse 14. Job says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. He says later in chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Folks, Job was looking to the same hope that we look to when we look to the day when our renewal will come, we look to the day when, when our Redeemer will come and stand upon the earth. We look for the day that, that though we know He now lives, one day we will not know it by faith only, but by sight. We look forward to, as Job says, when in the flesh we shall see God. Listen, we speak much about the glory of justification and salvation, and rightly so. Those are glorious things. We don't want to downplay them. But brethren, there is something even more glorious that God has for us. He's not just given us His Son so that you can get out of hell. He has done it for that, but it's not just that. He has given us His Son that ultimately there is you're made new. You are redeemed. Everything is redeemed. Everything is made new. You're not, you're not, not just saved from your sin to now live in this world exactly the same way it is. You're saved from your sin, awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ when all of it is made new. All creation is made new. And we'll close with this. Romans chapter 8. I walked through this passage a number of months ago, maybe. Romans 6, 7, and 8, just very briefly, in an attempt to show that this, this wrestle that we have with sin in this life uh, will ultimately come to an end. And I think this is Paul's argument. He starts in chapter 5, and all the way through chapter 8, he's discussing what the relevance is for sin and ultimately suffering in the life of a Christian. Finally, he makes his way to chapter 8. He says this, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage 
to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, watch, the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, what hope? Redemption of everything. Creation, our bodies, the whole, the whole bit. In this hope, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. All right, we, get, we grasp that. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Brethren, we are looking for that. We are waiting for that. When suffering and everything that, that is bad about this creation is totally wiped away, and we find ourselves in a place better than what was initially at the Garden of Eden. We don't go back to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. We go way past what it was like in the Garden of Eden. God takes us to perfect paradise to dwell with him no suffering no the bible says no tear there's no tear there's nothing bad there and we look for that we wait for that we wait for the redemption of our bodies we wait for the redemption of all creation when everything is made new everything is redeemed it's ultimately brethren even though we want to suffer well in this life we look and we pray, as Paul says, come Lord Jesus, that our suffering would be removed. We could dwell with God in perfect unity and in joy. Let's pray. Father, you are... You are, in fact, the greatest treasure that we could ever have. We see the man in Scripture who goes and sells all that he has to buy this field because it is to him of great value. And Lord, that is what you are. You are to us of infinite value, and yet we know in our own hearts that we don't always live like that. Lord, we ask that you would help us to suffer well as we see Job did, but also, Lord, to keep us from the rashness of mouth, the quickness of speech, as we do find Job to have. Lord, we do plead with you that if we do find ourselves in suffering because of sin, that you would help us to see it, to know it, to repent of it, to clear our name before you 
But Lord, if it's not because of sin, would you help us to endure it with joy, knowing that it is conforming us into the image of one who suffered far more than all of us. Thank you for your word, O God, and thank you for uh, its truth and its validity for us. Please help us to live in light of it for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.